0: turn in your bibles to john chapter 12 john chapter 12 and uh grateful that everybody's joined us hello to everybody who is watching online hello to everyone in this room if we haven't met my name is brian i'm one of the pastors here we're continuing in our study of john can we just give one more hand to our young adults our harbor crew for (laughs) leading so well um they they were doing an incredible job uh, at the doors at worship. Tj and Aridney crushed announcements. Who got who got origami? Did anyone get origami? Yeah, <laughs> Harley, who goes to the harbor, he made like he makes like origami. He specializes in it. So we had some people pass now. I mean, what what a great morning already! Oh my goodness. All right. So a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, and it was a neuroscientist who was being interviewed. He has specialized and spent his entire life studying the brain. And he told me, and by he told me, I mean he told everyone listening to the podcast, uh, an interesting thing that I didn't know, which was that there is incredible power in the sunlight that uh, takes place before before 10 a.m. So from the time the sun rises till 10 a.m., and he says, if you're outside in the sunlight for 20 minutes between the time the sun comes up and 10 a.m. without sunglasses on, that powerful things happen in your body and that God has actually wired in these incredible things. Now, he made sure to specify, don't stare at the sun, right? (laughs) Remember kindergarten? Like, we don't want anyone to stare at the sun. But what he told us was that there are these incredible things that happen just by allowing light into your eyes. And he said that, you know, if you're inside versus outside, outside is about a 100 to a thousand times more light is getting into your eyeballs. And because of that, your, your brain is waking up, your body's waking up, your body is actually releasing uh, hormones that increase your mood. It's releasing hormones that help you uh, to, to continue to be healthy. And this was the really fascinating thing, at least that I thought. He said that once your eye, eyes see sunlight for the first time, that 16 hours later, your body releases natural melatonin which helps you go to sleep. And I thought, man, God is so cool that he literally like made it so that when the sun comes up, our body automatically says, hey, 16 hours later, it's time to go night-night. <laughs> and, and so what, what this experience did for me was it, it showed me and it taught me that this ex subject matter expert, he informed me about something that I had previously taken for granted. Now today we're going to hear Jesus, and he's going to give a teaching to us about the cross. And what we're going to discover is that just like sunlight has all of these properties that maybe we didn't realize, that the cross has these incredible facets that we're going to study and marvel at today. And it's going to be a beautiful thing as we see what Jesus thinks about in his perspective on the cross. Now, just to catch us up, we're in John 12. And the first 12 chapters of John cover three years of Jesus' ministry here on this earth. But this is actually, today's teaching is actually um, a stopping point, and it's where we're changing direction in the book of John. Because the next seven chapters of John is going to cover 24 hours, the last 24 hours of jesus's life and so the intensity is is getting ratcheted up and so here's here's what we're going to do let's let's start in john chapter 12 verse 20 and we'll, we'll set the scene it says this there were some greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival and they came to philip who was from Bethsaida in galilee with a request sir they said we would like to see jesus so philip went to andrew andrew and philip in turn told jesus and Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So here's the scene. It is time for the Passover, a yearly festival in Jerusalem. And a historian, Josephus, tells us that at the Passover, 2.7 million Jews descended upon Jerusalem. So the town is packed. And not only were there Jews there, and we know During the time of the scripture that the Jews were those who worshipped and served the one true God. Not only were there Jews there, but there were also many Gentiles, which are non-Jews, who were interested in the things of God. If you remember uh, in Bible study, uh, if you remember in the book of Acts chapter 10, it's the story of the first Gentile convert. And there's a man named Cornelius. And it's described as this man who was not a Jew who feared God and served God. And so we have this picture that at that time, there were mostly Jews who were serving God, but Gentiles as well. And some of these Gentiles wanted to see Jesus. Now, interestingly, they did not go directly to Jesus. They actually went to Philip and Andrew, two of his disciples. And we don't quite know why they went to Philip and Andrew. It's possible that Jesus was in the temple and a place where the Gentiles couldn't go, and so they had to ask uh, Philip and Andrew to go. It's possible that they saw Jesus and they were just nervous. Uh, think back to your, your middle school years, and I know that's always a painful thing to think about. But in middle school, if you're a guy and you like a girl, you don't go directly to the girl, right? You send your friend to go on your behalf. And your friend doesn't go directly to the girl. Your friend goes to her friend. And, and your friend says to her friend, would your friend be interested in adding my friend on Snapchat? That's how, that's how it goes. <laughs> and so maybe this is the basic way that it's happening, is that the, 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 the Greeks are just a little bit too nervous. So Philip and Andrew say, hey, there's some people who want to see you. But interestingly, Jesus... He doesn't respond directly to their request. We don't even really know what happens to these Greeks. It's possible that he's talking to them at this next moment. It's possible that he just starts this teaching. But he begins a teaching about the cross. And what he says is, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? It means the hour is here for the cross. It's time for me to be crucified. Now, as we've been studying John... One thing that we've seen is that John has repeated this phrase of the hour. And and there's three times in John where Jesus mentions it. They're up on the screen right now. In John 2, very early in the story, Jesus tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. And then even in John 7 and John 8, both of these instances, people are trying to harm Jesus. But what we see is that that couldn't happen because his hour had not yet come. But now, in this moment, the Holy Spirit has revealed to Jesus that he has come for the purpose of dying on the cross. He was born to die, and now the time has come, the hour has arrived, it's time for him to go to the cross. And so, we're going to study the last time that Jesus taught publicly in the book of John, and it's going to be a teaching about the cross, Here's the outline so that you know that I do have a direction. I know where we're going here. And the outline is this. Uh, First off, we're going to look at what happened at the cross. And we're going to spend most of the teaching looking at that. And then lastly, as we close the message today, we're going to look at three responses to the cross. Now, we've already seen one of the things that happened at the cross in verse 23. We can look back, but Jesus said this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so the first thing that happened at the cross is this, you can write it down, that Jesus was glorified, that Jesus was glorified. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses this word glorified. If I was talking about an event where I was betrayed by all my friends, tortured and executed publicly, I would not call that a moment of glory. But this is the term that Jesus uses. And in fact, this Greek word glorified, it's up on the screen here. It's this word doxazo. It means to glory, to honor, to bestow glory upon. Jesus is saying that this moment of the cross is his coronation. It's his crowning achievement. It's the moment of his greatest glory. Now, I want you to think about your life. What are the moments of your greatest glory? For, for, for some of us, yeah, I heard salvation. That's a beautiful moment of glory. But for some of us, maybe it's it's graduation. That, that you walk across the stage and you received your diploma. Maybe there's some first uh, generation college graduates in the room and you're like, man, this was a beautiful moment for myself, a beautiful moment for my family. For, 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 for some of us, maybe you started a small business and, and it was that three year mark where you felt like the business stabilized and you're like, we're going to make it. Maybe it's For some, that you got married or or that you, you had kids or for grandparents in the room, that moment of glory where you got to hold your grandkids. There's all these beautiful moments, but they're high points for us. And what Jesus is saying is that the cross is the moment where he was crowned as king. And John is actually painting this picture that Jesus is like a prince that's headed to be crowned. But he's not going to be crowned as king on a battlefield. He's not going to be crowned as king at Westminster Abbey. It's going to be at the cross. And so why was Jesus crowned at the cross? It's because as the humble suffering servant, fully God and fully man, he fulfilled everything that God had called him to do. He lived the perfect life. He dies on the cross for our sins, and when he says, it is finished, he says, I've accomplished everything God's called me to do, and I've accomplished everything that is needed to save humanity. And at that moment, he is crowned as king. This is what the Apostle Paul says about this. He says in Philippians chapter 2, therefore God highly exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So at the cross, Jesus was glorified. Let's keep reading. Look with me at verse 24. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So here Jesus compares his death to that of a seed falling into a ground. Now now think about a seed. When I was thinking about seeds, I was thinking about grapes with seeds. And the reason is because when we buy grapes, we buy seedless grapes, right? But we've all been in that moment where you go to the store and you get back and you realize that you've made a terrible mistake and you've bought (laughs) grapes with seeds. And you realize for the next week, my grape experience is ruined (laughs) because I'm going to have to pick out every single seed of every single grape. And, And in that moment, that grape that has that seed, if you eat it and accidentally swallow the seed, if you eat it and spit it out in the sink, that seed only has the potential for one grape. But someone who is knowledgeable can take that seed, plant it in the right soil, cultivate it, and let it grow. And that potential is actually infinite grapes. Because that vine can produce thousands upon thousands. And then that vine produces grapes that have seeds that could produce thousands upon thousands. And that is what Jesus is saying. He says, if I don't go to the cross, it's just going to be me. But if I die, if I rise again, the potential is now that the whole world can be saved. And so then what we see in verse 25, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates this life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. We're going to come back to this at the end. So for now, we'll look at verse 27. Jesus, thinking about the cross, teaching about the cross, says this. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that there's this famous scene where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right before he's killed, just between this moment we're reading about right now and the cross. And just hours before he's killed, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's a time where he's praying to God, and he's so full of anxiety and so full of trouble of the soul that he actually sweats drops of blood. And he calls out to God, and he says, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, God, if there's a plan B to save the world, now would be a really good time to execute plan B. But what he ends up saying is, but God, it is not my will, but your will be done. And so in that moment, Jesus surrenders himself and he lays down his will and says, God, it's all about your glory. I will go to the cross. Now, John doesn't tell us the story of the Garden of Gethsemane in his gospel, but this moment is very similar. Jesus, as he's teaching the crowd, he thinks about the weight of the cross and his soul is filled with trouble as he realizes what God has called him to do. But his prayer is not, God, rescue me from this, take it away. But his prayer is, God, in the middle of it, may you be glorified. Now here's an application point for us. Each one of us here who is a follower of Jesus, and really I believe every person has a call of God on their life every person. For some in here who don't know Jesus, that call is for you to step into a relationship with Jesus. That's the first step. But for those who are in a relationship with Jesus, God has a call for your life. God has a call for your future, for your career, for your ministry, for the way that you interact with the world, for the way that you serve this church. But here's the reality of a call of God. Whenever you receive a call of God, one of the things that comes with it. Is doubt and fear, because the moment God tells you that I'm calling you to do something, you realize that thing is impossible on my own. And so, just like Jesus, our souls can be troubled. And and what I'm encouraged about is, first off, I think we need to take the pressure off of us, because Jesus, his call was way bigger than ours, right? Like, is anybody else called here to be the savior of the world? No hands. Okay. So so none of us have that weight on us. But but the call that God has put on our life, it is weighty to us, but our prayer should be that of Jesus. God, I am nervous. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed by this, but my prayer is not God deliver me from it. My prayer is God be glorified in it. And may we as a church, may you individually say, I do want to step into the call that God has for my life, even if I'm afraid, because I want to follow Jesus in this way. Let's keep reading. Look with me at verse 28. As Jesus says, "Follow, Father, glorify your name. We read, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So God speaks from heaven. One of three times in Jesus' ministry when he does this, at baptism, at the transfiguration, and now here he speaks from heaven and he confirms to Jesus he is working and he has glorified his name. This is the second thing that happens when at the cross, and it's this, you can write it down, that at the cross, God was glorified. At the cross, God was glorified. You see, God's plan from the very beginning of the world, what was for Jesus to go to the cross, because at the cross, God's holiness and his love meets You see, God loved humanity from the very beginning. He wanted relationship with humanity, but our sin separated us from God. And so God had to do something to bridge that gap, and the plan was from the foundations of the earth that fully God and fully man, Jesus, would die on the cross for our sins, paying for our sins and inviting us into life with God. And so in this moment, as much as the world could look at the cross and say that it's weak, As much as the world could look at the cross and say that it is foolish, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God for the glory of God. God was glorified. Let's keep going. Look at verse 29. After the crowd hears this voice from heaven, we read, The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. So there was confusion about the cross. Verse 30. Or, excuse excuse me, there was confusion about the voice. And Jesus explains in verse 30 this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for the judgment of the world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. So, this leads us to the third thing that happened at the cross. Jesus says, Now the prince of the world will be driven out. So, write this down. At the cross, Satan was defeated. We can celebrate that. Amen. At the cross, Satan was defeated. Now, think back for a moment to the very, very beginning. In the beginning, God creates the world. He creates human beings. And the first thing that he does once humans are created is he actually gives human beings authority and rule over the earth. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He hands over rule of the earth to humanity. Now, what happens in just two chapters is it took human beings two chapters to ruin everything. This is why we can't have nice things. And he hands over humans. They, they believe Satan. They, they don't believe God. They don't trust God. And, and what happens is they eat the forbidden fruit. They, they, they reject God, and they trust Satan instead. Now, at that moment, although Adam and Eve did not realize it, they handed over rule and authority of the world to Satan. And we know that God is on the throne. He is sovereign overall, but Scripture does call Satan the prince of the world or the ruler of the world. And so this world is under the influence of our enemy, the devil, Satan. And this explains how much of the terrible and awful things that are happening in the world. And this is why it's so important that Jesus was fully human. Because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve handed over control of the world to Satan because they believed him and they rebelled against God. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, as fully human and also fully God, surrendered his will to God, went to the cross, died for the sins of the world. And at that moment, Satan was defeated. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that if the demonic forces of the world had known what was happening, they never would have crucified Jesus. They were fooled by their own tactics into their defeat. This is what Colossians says about this in Colossians 2. Paul writes that having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross was the moment when Satan's forces were defeated. This this language Paul's using is almost like Jesus is leading a victory parade into a city with captors behind him. Now, Now maybe you're here and you're thinking, Brian, I don't know if you're paying attention or not, but it doesn't seem like Satan is losing. Like I look at my life and it feels like Satan's doing pretty good. I look at the world and I don't think he's defeated. Has anyone told Satan that? And what we have to realize, there's an illustration that I heard once. This isn't original to me, but it's helpful to me. Think about World War II. In World War II, there was a pivotal moment that happened in June of 1944, and it was called D-Day. And on D-Day, the Allied forces, they stormed the beaches of Normandy, huge casualties, huge deaths. But that moment was a moment where the Allied forces got the German forces, and dealt a huge, devastating blow to them. And historians would agree that D-Day was actually the key victory that all but secured ultimate victory for the Allied forces in World War II. But that wasn't the end of the war. The battle still continued for almost a year until V-Day, Victory Day, which happened in May of 1945. And in our world, what we can think of spiritually speaking is that as Christians, we are standing in between D-Day and V-Day and that Satan has been defeated. That death blow was dealt at the cross, but final victory will not happen until Jesus returns and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there's some application points that are so important for us. First off, I want to speak to all of us who are Christians. We need to realize that because of the cross, Satan has been defeated, and the power of Satan is no longer the authority in our lives. And so we got to realize, sometimes Christians can have such a negative outlook and such an almost pathetic outlook about ourselves. Oh, I'm so weak. I'm being destroyed by sin. Satan is just, like, wrecking havoc in my life. We need to stop that but because actually sin doesn't have power over you if you're in Christ, because Christ has already defeated it on the cross. We, we live in the presence of sin. We're still tempted by sin, but the Holy Spirit living in us has already defeated the enemy, and we stand in victory with Jesus because of the cross. And we need to understand that, that we don't have to fear the enemy, oh yeah, the enemy's more powerful than us, infinitely so. Don't try to go out and mess with the enemy on your own, but we also have to understand that we are standing with our King Jesus who has already defeated the enemy and we don't have to be afraid because he is the victor. Now there's another application point that's very important. There are spiritual forces in this world that aren't of God. And we have to understand that. The, the, the Bible says that there are two spiritual kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And there are people probably in this room, probably online, certainly in our world, that are dabbling in spiritual things that aren't of the Lord. And, and you think that it's harmless, and you think that because it's, it's making you feel good. And so there's things like crystals, or, or, or things like manifesting, or things like um, mediums, or Or horoscopes, or different spiritualities. And, and the reason that, that we do it, or the reason that people do it, is because they feel like it makes me feel at peace. It makes me feel joy. And listen, it might, because spiritual forces are real. I'm not going to stand up here and be like, "Well, none of that stuff is real. It is real. Some of it is extremely real, but it's extremely dark. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And it says in First John chapter 4 that if a spirit doesn't say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the King, that we need to get rid of it and that it's from the enemy. And so I want to encourage you and I also just want to, 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 to warn you that if you're dealing with things, if you're messing around with things, if you're involved with things that are spiritual but not of the Lord, you're opening yourself up to the work of the enemy. And the enemy, his goal is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He, he is prideful. He's trying to take ground wherever he can. I would encourage you to worship a king that is so humble that he would die on the cross for you to enter into what you were created to be with life with God. So we need to, we, we, we need to cast out the work of the enemy put it away and step into life with Jesus. Let's keep going. Look with me at verse 32. Sorry, we just read 32. Just kidding, we didn't. We're going to read 32. <laughs> verse 32. Jesus says this, he says, "When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself." And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They did not understand what Jesus meant by going to the cross. Verse 35, Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light. So that you may become children of light. And when he finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. The th- fourth thing that happened at the cross is this: that I am invited to new life. And and I wrote it like that because I want us to personalize it and realize that God is issuing an invitation to every person here, every person online, every person in the commons, and saying, I want to invite you into the life that I have for you. And, And Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I draw all men to myself. So what he's saying is that the moment of the cross is the moment where Jesus' death led to our life. And all of us must realize that our sin separates us from God. And God has an incredible plan for our life. God wants to walk with us through life, but we can't access that plan because sin is a barrier. But at the cross, Jesus paid for the sin so that we can leave darkness, that we can walk in light, and we can step into everything That God has for us. Let's keep going. Now we're at verse 37. But I want us to skip down to verse 44. I'm going to come back to this chunk in the middle at the end. But in verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into the world as a light so that no one believes in me should stay in darkness. Verse 47 If anyone hears my words but not, does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Now, a lot of what Jesus just said there is simply him explaining that he's not a rogue agent, but that he's doing everything that the Father sent him. But I do want to highlight one thing, and this is going to be the last, the fifth thing that happened at the cross. At the cross, the judgment, the guidelines for judgment were drawn. At the cross, the guidelines for judgment were drawn. I want to read two verses to you from this text and kind of show you a little bit about them. Look back with me at verse 31. Jesus says in verse 31, now is the time for the judgment on the world. So he's saying judgment's happening right now at the cross. Now look at verse 47. In verse 47, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world. And in verse 48, he says, judgment's happening on the last day. So this actually seems like a contradiction. That on the one hand, Jesus is saying the cross is the judgment of the world. But then on the other hand, Jesus is saying that the last day is the judgment. So how can that be? Well, well, Jesus is not contradicting himself. What he's saying is that humanity will stand before God. Every single one of us individually will stand before God on the last day. But but that the guidelines, the parameters for that judgment is going to be the cross. So so the moment of the cross is the moment that we are going to be judged on. And so we have to realize this. Because a lot of people, when they think about judgment day, either either they don't want to think about it, or what, what they'll say is something like, Well, well, you know, I I believe the right things. I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of kind of mental knowledge. I have a lot of of mental information in my mind about, about God or about religion. I know a lot about other religions. And mental knowledge is good. It's good to grow. Some people would say that, that they've done a lot of good things. They would say like, man, like I've even done ministry. I've led worship. I've, I've done mighty works for God. But at one point, Jesus said, that there will be those who have done great works for God and he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. We see the Pharisees had a ton of mental knowledge. They had a lot of understanding, but they didn't know God. We even see that there are those that have a respect for Jesus. There are those who think Jesus is an awesome person, that think Jesus is a great prophet or a great teacher. But what Jesus is saying is on Judgment Day, which we should all greatly care about, it is a reality that's going to happen. On Judgment Day, we're not going to be judged on any of that. We're going to be judged on did we see Jesus through the cross? And at the cross, Jesus died and paid for our sins. But he also proved at that moment we can't justify ourselves, we can't save ourselves. We can't do enough good deeds. And so the only way to salvation is to believe in Jesus. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The only way to heaven, the only way to eternal life is to believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we do, we have forgiveness of our sins. We have a new life. Now, there's three responses to this message, and we're going to see these three responses. Remember, I said that as we close and land the plane, we're going to see these three responses. So let's look back at verse 37. It says that even after Jesus had performed many such signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, and John will quote from Isaiah again, and he says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now this verse is very heavy. It talks about God blinding people's eyes, hardening people's hearts. So what can this mean? Well, we know that God loves the world. We know that God's heart is for all people. And we know that that God pursues us and chases after us. And he gives way more grace than any of us can imagine. But God also gives each one of us free will. And what this verse is saying is that people have the choice to either accept or to reject God. And what this verse is also saying is that there comes a moment where you can continually over and over and over again reject God. Blind your eyes, stop up your ears, harden your hearts, and eventually God will say, okay, have it your way. And he will hand you over to your own foolishness. And this is not a popular thing. And so many people, they think, you know what, I can have endless opportunities for this. Like, like I, can, I can just keep doing whatever I want to do, and, and then whenever I want to, I'll just come to God. And that's not the case. In Genesis 6, God says that, that there will come a day when I will not strive with man. And so we must realize that, that any time God speaks to us, any time God stirs in our hearts, any time God reaches out his hand to draw us near, that is a beautiful gift, and we should respond to it. Now, now I'm up here standing before you. I ignored God. I rejected God for a long time. I'm incredibly thankful for how long-suffering and patient God was with me. Anybody else? And so hands all over the room would say that God is incredibly patient. But, man, we shouldn't say, oh, man, God's patient, so I'm going to test it. We should say, God is patient. Let me run towards him. And so the first response is this. You can jot it down if you want, that it's possible to ignore God. And ignoring really means to reject God. Let's look at the second response, verse 42. It says, at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. And so the second response is this, that we can hide. And there are people in the time of Jesus, just like there are people now who who believe in Jesus, but they view their faith as private. Man, if I were to tell the Pharisees or the religious leaders, I would be disqualified. And so I don't wanna do that, I would just prefer to keep it to myself. And as I look at the responses, what I recognize is this is the one that I'm probably in my heart naturally drawn toward. And as I talk with different people in my generation, young adults and youth, I think there's many who, who love Jesus and are excited about Jesus, but, but we're afraid to talk about Jesus openly. Because we don't want to offend people, and we live in such a day where, where it's very much a value of your truth. And, and if I try to press my beliefs on you, that's viewed as a negative thing. And so we, we, we want to be winsome. We want to be wise. We don't want to stuff our, our, our beliefs down someone's throat in such a way that it would just, our rudeness or callousness would cause people to, to reject God. But, but God does say this, and Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And whoever disowns me before others, I will disown Before my Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying that there's no such thing as a private Christian. That there's no such thing as someone who just says, I I am a Christian by myself, I made the decision by myself, but I never want to talk about it or tell anybody else. And so that first moment for us of publicly acknowledging our faith is baptism, where we go public. And we say, I am acknowledging that I am a Christian. But that moment continues throughout our lives as we daily talk about and live out the fact that we are sons of God and daughters of God. That we are Jesus people. And Jesus people are proud of it. And we declare it. All right, let's find out the third response. Let's look back to verse 25. Jesus is talking about the cross, and this is what he says to people who are following him. They say, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And so the third response, the best response is this, to follow Jesus. Jesus. And what Jesus explains is that following him, becoming a Christian, it's not just adding Jesus to your already awesome life. It's not using Jesus as kind of like an addendum whenever you need him. But following Jesus is in fact you saying and me saying every single day, I'm dying to what I want and I'm saying yes to Jesus. Jesus says if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. In other words, if you are making it your goal to build your own kingdom and empire, at the end, that will be lost. But he says, if you hate your life, that will lead to eternal life. Now, Jesus is not talking about us hating ourselves or or living in a state of depression. He's saying that we should view our life with such disdain as compared to stepping forward into the plans that God has for us. And that there should be nothing in our life that we would hold on to if it's keeping us from God. And that we should look at every aspect of our being, our mind, in our mouth, in our heart, in our hands and feet. And we should say every aspect of us is dedicated, consecrated to God. And we are allowing God to use every aspect of us. And we are saying to God, it's not about me. It's not about my agenda. I'm stepping into the life that you have for me. And that's the call for all of us. For, for people here who have been a Christian for 10, 15, 20, 50 years, today the call for you is to say, I want to keep denying myself. I want to keep laying down everything that is keeping me from Jesus and I want to follow. And for those of you who are here who would say, I'm not a Christian. I've never made that decision or I've walked away from God and I'm coming back. The call to you is to say, Jesus died for your sins. So that you could have a relationship with God. And God is inviting you. Jesus is inviting you to come. Let's pray. God, we just recognize that, that in this moment that you're working, that you're moving. We recognize that your Holy Spirit is stirring here. And God, we, we just want to take a moment and just thank you for the cross. We, we worship you and we, we say to you that you are good, that you are gracious, that you are Lord. And God, we thank you that we've gotten a chance to reflect on all of these aspects of the cross. And so God, I pray for every Christian in this room right now. I, I pray that we would grow in our worship of you, grow in our wonder of you, And that the response to this message would be for us to say, God, take even more of our life. I know that for me as a Christian, there's oftentimes moments when I think I've surrendered it all to God and then that's just you inviting me even deeper into more surrender, into more abiding. And so I just pray that, that we would do this. I just wanna ask for every Christian here that's in this room, if you feel like that there's something that you're holding on to right now, and that you're saying, "Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I should be, I, I need to surrender this to God." Maybe it's an unhealthy thought pattern. Maybe it's a, a habit. Maybe it's an action that you're taking. Maybe it's just a conversation that you need to have that you're not having. Maybe it's a step of faith. But you're saying, "I want to follow Jesus. I want to surrender." And if that's you, Would you just raise your hand right now? I believe there's gonna be hands going up all over as followers of Jesus as we say, you know what, I just wanna just further surrender to you. Amazing. These moments are just moments for us just to, before God, just say, God, I'm surrendering to you. I'm inviting your Holy Spirit in this time among these people to say, God, continue to move in me. And God, we are, we surrender to you wholeheartedly. And we ask you to move.